We are going to start a new series, and I'm very excited about this. Not today, though. It's starting next week on the Ten Commandments. You guys remember the Ten Commandments? And we're not watching the four-hour movie. Sorry. <laughs> we are going straight to the book of Exodus, and we're going to start from there. And it'll probably be about a two-month series. We're talking about all those commandments. Why did God give those commandments to the nation Israel? Are they still relevant today? Why don't we do some of them, or do we do some of them? All those questions, I hope, will be answered over the next few months as we walk, literally walk through the Ten Commandments. So I'm excited about that. And then after that, just so you know, like the rest of the year, we're going to tackle the book of Isaiah. You know, it's that really big book in the middle of the Bible. We're going to go through that, so we'll probably take about ten years to go through the book of Isaiah. So... I'm excited about that. But before we do that, we're going to take one last look at the gospel. So turn with me to Matthew 28, and we're going to look at the Great Commission. And before we do that, let's pray. Lord God, once again, we thank you for this day that you gave us. Thank you for the time of worship, even the, the new song that wasn't a new song. It was just, for me, just so awesome to think of your grace and how it rains down on each person. And I pray, as Pastor John did, that everybody this morning would receive that. And I pray, Lord God, that as your word goes out, that you would soften hearts, that you would open eyes and ears, that, Lord, they might hear, that we all might hear what the Spirit has to say to the church this morning. So we ask that now, and it's in your name that we ask that. Amen. Well, John, oh, no, not John, Matthew 28 we are going to look at verses 16 through 20. And as I mentioned, this is a section usually referred to as the Great Commission. And we're going to talk about that. But I titled this morning's message, Jesus is Risen, Now What? Kind of like, well, what does it mean now? What do we do now that Jesus has risen? Because we live in that time between the first coming, which when Jesus came, and the second coming. And what do we do? What is our commission well, we'll find that here in verses 16 through 20, and we'll know what we are called to do as individual believers and as a church body. So let's read that. Matthew again, 28, starting in verse 16. It says this, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A small section here with a few commandments, but it's packed with meaning. And we're going to go back and look at that. And hopefully I can unpack it well enough that you really just get a sense of what you're called to do. And so let's look at that now. So here are the 11 disciples. Obviously, Judas has hung himself, feeling remorse over what he had done to the Lord and selling him out. And so there's 11 disciples. And Matthew writes that they proceed, they proceed to Galilee the mountain that Jesus had designated. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, you could turn back with me, this verse won't come up, Matthew 26, verses 31 through 32, Jesus had actually told the disciples 
that after he was going to be crucified and raised again, that he would meet them in Galilee. Look at what he says here in Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So Jesus had already told them that this was going to happen, that there was going to be a meeting take place after his resurrection in Galilee. And if you remember from last week, the angel also told the women that visited the tomb this back in earlier in the chapter. Look at verse 7 of Matthew 28. The angel says this, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And then drop down or look ahead to verse 10. Jesus himself, when he meets the women as they were leaving the tomb, he says this to them. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. So this date had already been preset. Jesus wanted to see his disciples in Galilee and obviously the women as well. And so that's what brings us to this section that Jesus wants to speak to them. Angel told them, he told them. And something to point out, a mountain. What's so significant about a mountain? Think of all the experiences that Jesus had with his disciples on the mountain. There's the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. There is the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus revealed his glory to a few of his disciples. And then there was the Mount of Olives where Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and his second return. Now he is going to reveal to them something else at the mountain. A mountain is very significant in God's revelation to his people. And so we're going to see that here in a few moments. So now look at verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. So, we're told that the 11 disciples saw Jesus and they worshipped him. And that word worship in the Greek word is, we get the Greek from the Greek to lay prostrate, like fall down on your face before somebody. And so that's the picture that we have here is the disciples, I believe all 11 of them, fall down and worship Jesus. Have you ever imagined, and I was doing this as we were singing that last song, what it will be like when you actually stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. When, when, when we're in heaven, when we stand before him all alone, it's just you and the Lord Jesus. I don't know if we walk to him or he comes to us. I don't know how that works. I'm guessing it's kind of like a wedding where the bride walks down towards the aisle and the groom is there waiting. And the groom, obviously, in Scripture is referred to as Jesus Christ. And the church is the bride. So maybe we're walking towards Jesus. And I don't know, maybe halfway down to him, you fall down and just like, I mean, I don't know. What are you going to do? I I like that song. I can only imagine. Maybe you thought of that as I said that. You know, what will you do when you stand before Jesus? When you meet the Savior face to face? No, it's something to think about. So here we, we see the disciples fall down. They start worshiping Jesus. And then there's something curious there at the end of verse 17. Maybe you caught that as I read it. But some were doubtful. So I have two questions. Who are the some 
and what are they doubting? Is it some of the 11? Because we're told the 11 disciples were to go there. But as I read earlier, the angel told the women to tell the disciples to go to the mountain. And then Jesus also said the same thing. But there's a hint that maybe even the women went. And it could be even that there's other disciples that went to the mountain to see Jesus and not just the 11. And so commentators, you know, they debate on this. Is it some of the 11 that were doubtful? Is it some other disciples that were there that were doubtful? I tend to believe it was another group that the 11 fell down and worshiped. They had already seen Jesus, if you remember, in other accounts of the gospel. So it wasn't the first time that they saw Jesus. But maybe there were some there that this was the first time that they saw the Lord Jesus. And they were wondering, is this really the Lord? And maybe they bowed down too. But in their hearts, they were doubtful at what they were actually seeing. Right? Is this really Jesus? Is this really happening? Or maybe they were just doubtful of trying to grasp and understand all that this means, the resurrection. Now that Jesus has risen again. Again, we're not told. Matthew just says they were doubtful. But I want to just point out something as a way of application. Before we're too harsh on all the people that are standing there, you're like, how can they be doubtful? They're standing right before Jesus. It is him. They could touch him. They could feel him. I think sometimes we still battle with doubt, don't we, in our own faith, in our own day-to-day walk? I mean, we can be disciples of Christ and still have some doubts on some things, maybe some hesitations. We need reassurance, it seems like, over and over again that God is going to do what he says he's going to do, that God is who he says he is. Again, depending on the magnitude of whatever is going on in our, la- in our lives, we still deal with doubt. Even though, again, we can say we believe in God and we worship him. And I'm not using that as a, as a bad thing. Because, right, when you, something bad happens to you in your life, you may doubt. Why is God allowing this to happen? Why isn't God answering my prayers? Has anybody had that besides me? You don't have to raise your hand. Well, I'm in good company. And if you've doubted before, you know, about anything in your walk, in your faith, you're in good company. Turn with me to the book of Psalms. I'm just going to show you two Psalms. Because the psalmists, I really like this, is they are very open and honest about their feelings. And I've, I've always directed people to the book of Psalms when they are struggling in their walk, when something bad happens and something that they don't understand. Because you see the psalmist, they are writing out their feelings. They're kind of venting to God about what's going on. And then eventually they meditate on what, who God really is. So look at Psalm 10. Now let's just look at verse 1. Maybe some of you have thought this or said it out loud before, depending on what's going on in your life. So the psalmist writes this. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Like, why are you so far away, God? That's the feeling that he gets. Now, as believers, we know that God is not far away, right? He's with us. But you get a sense sometime in your life when you're doubting that God's far away. And he says, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Maybe you felt that way too. Something bad has happened in your life. And you feel like God's hiding himself. So see, the psalmists are real, and I really like that. They, they're, in a way, venting to the Lord. 
Keep your finger there, but look over to Psalm 13. I'm just going to show you one more. Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist writes this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Maybe again at times in our life or your life, you felt that God has forgotten all about you. And he says this, How long will you hide your face from me? As in the other psalm. He says, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? So here is the psalmist, a, a poetic way of saying he's like talking to himself, trying to you know, just give himself counsel, and he feels like he's all alone. And in verse, at the end of verse 2, he says, How long will my enemy be exalted over me? He feels defeated. And, and where's the Lord? He's hiding himself from him. But the reality is that God doesn't always show us what he's doing, why he's doing things. He may. And, and we don't obviously see the big picture all the time. I want to give you an example of this. Turn uh, to the prophet Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you want to pronounce it. You're like, Habahu? So it's one of those where you just got to flip and flip, and then, oh, I just passed it. It's probably like really, the papers, the pages are real nice and straight in your Bible. To give you an idea, it's between Zephaniah and Nahum. You're like, that doesn't help. But Habakkuk, I'm going to say Habakkuk, I just... Or Habakkuk, that's why I like it. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, is, is a good example of what's happening in Psalms. And by the way, don't lose the, the place in the uh, book of Psalms. I'm going to come back to that as well. So I like this because God here actually answers Habakkuk. And you look at the beginning here at verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. So it's similar to the Psalms in his maybe venting or frustration or doubting. He says, how long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence. So he's even telling the Lord, look, there's something bad happening and God is not answering. Look at verse 2. And yet you do not save me. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arise. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. So it's a serious time in in the nation of Israel where just everything's going wrong. The world's going crazy. There's no justice. The righteous, again, or justice is being perverted. And he's like, why is this happening? And look what uh, I think God answers him here in verse, I think it's verse 5. He says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. So here he actually tells uh, uh, the prophet what's going on. And, he, and I like at the end of verse 5, he said, you would not believe if you were told. And now I'm going to leave you hanging. You could go home and read the rest of that book. It's only three chapters. You'll be done in like 10 minutes. But think of that. If God, what if God peeled back the sky of your life, so to speak, and showed you what was going to happen? I bet you you would not want to know. I wouldn't want to know. So sometimes God doesn't reveal to us because just as he said to Habakkuk, you wouldn't believe it 
if I told you. And so again, things happen in our lives where we begin to doubt, but I'm going to give you reassurance that when you begin to doubt, do what the psalmist does, and we'll look in a few moments, go back and reflect on who God is and what God has said. Look at, go back to Psalm 10 now, just for a second here. And look at verses 16 through 18. So after crying out to God, the psalmist has vented his frustration. And then there's a moment when the psalm turns and he begins to reflect on who God is. Look at verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his hand. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. He's reflecting on who God is. God didn't give him an answer. He doesn't have to. But it's good to express and cry out to God when you're doubting. It's okay to tell the Lord that you're upset, that you're doubting something. Because I think as you do that, then God will speak to you in your prayers and have you reflect back upon his goodness and who he is. And it's, you will have counseled in your soul and God will answer you. And now look at Psalm 13, the other psalm that we looked at. And just look at verses 3 through 6. So again, after he was complaining that God was hiding himself and not answering him and letting his enemies exalt over him, he says this, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. A very poetic way of saying I'm going to die. And my enemy will say I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. Look at verse 5. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And just reflecting and remembering all that God has brought you to. I mean, we just sung a grace like rain, right, has come down on me. But then the first sign of something negative happening in our lives, we tend to forget all those things, don't we? We're so focused on the now, we're not thinking of the big picture. And, I, and I'm probably just like you. I, I don't want bad things to happen in my life or to my family, to the church. But the reality is, is we live in a fallen world, and this is not our home. We have something so much better waiting in store for us. And again, Jesus has risen, so now what? Let's go back to our text. Sorry for that little excursion there. But I think it's important, again, on the doubt, the doubting. When you doubt, cry out to God. Express your doubts, and I promise you he will comfort you. So we're back at the mount in Galilee, the mountain in Galilee. Again, something big is about to happen. The disciples are worshiping him. Some others are doubting or hesitant or something is going on in their hearts. And now Jesus is going to speak and give a message to everyone there. And he says this. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. So Jesus is saying, now that he has risen from the dead, something has happened. There's something brand new happening again, hence why I think he's meeting him at a mountain. Something big is happening. And he starts off by saying that all authority on heaven and earth has now been given to him. 
His authority in some sense has become enlarged. It's greater. It's magnified because of the resurrection, because he has defeated death. And this is what Paul expresses in Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 5 through 11 in Philippians. Hopefully you could find that easier than Habakkuk. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. He writes this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed, excuse me, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him. Here's that authority that was given to Jesus because of his death and resurrection. He highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what's happening here. This is Jesus saying, all authority now has been given to me. Why? Because he died on the cross? No. Because he rose from the dead. He's resurrected. He has defeated death. Nothing at this point is going to hold back the gospel of Jesus Christ, and nothing is going to stop God's plan of redemption. I think this is depicted in a very symbolic way and very graphically in the book of Revelation. And I'd like you to turn there with me now to the book of Revelation chapter 5. I'm not going to read the entire, the entire chapter as much as I would like to. The Bible says it so much better than I can. But I think here is the depiction that John is giving us as he peels back the scene of what's the spiritual scene of what's really happening at the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 1. John writes, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside, and on the back, sealed up with seven seals, I saw a strong, excuse me, and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book? And to break the seals. And no one in heaven and on earth. The same language Jesus uses in Matthew. Heaven and earth. Showing authority. Or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold. And here answers Jesus. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. It is Jesus Christ who is going to open the scrolls of God's redemptive plan to take place throughout uh, the history of the world, throughout human history. And that's what's being depicted here in Revelation chapter 5. Continue on in verse 6. And he goes, And I saw between the throne... With the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if it was slain. That's Jesus. 
having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Why is Jesus able to take the scroll out of the hands? Because he is the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth to proclaim the gospel. He's defeated death. He is now unfolding God's redemptive plan. Drop down to chapter 6 now in Revelation and look at what happens after this. He says, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with the voice thunder, Come. And I look and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So Jesus opens the, seventh, the first seal of the book, of the scroll, and unleashes God's redemptive plan for the church age. I believe that's what's happening here. But you, can you see the graphic depiction of what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 28 and what's happened by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection? He had, now has all authority. He's the only one that has the authority as John witnessed here in Revelation. Now let's go back to our text. So, Jesus having all authority, what does he do with that authority? What does he tell the disciples to go out to do now? Uh, Where are we? We are in verse 19 now. So all authority has been given to him, and this is what he says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So he tells them a few things here. Number one, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower of someone or something. That's what a disciple is. So obviously, because Jesus is telling to make disciples of him, they are to call people to follow Christ. This is evangelism. You are going out and telling everyone to follow Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has defeated sin. He's defeated your sin. And you will no longer face judgment if you put your trust and faith in him. Now, is it limited to just one people? A certain nation? A certain region? No, look again what he says. Go out and make disciples of all the nations. And I think the disciples... Started off great and it's continued. This is still happening. Christianity is not just a religion of one nationality, of one nation. It, more than any other, encompasses all people, all nations, all regions. And I like that fact. You know, you you tend to think of some other uh, religions are just strictly for certain nationalities or certain regions of the world. I remember reading a statistic I think it was Hinduism in 97% located in India. One nation, one people, where Christianity has spread throughout all the world. I think somebody was mentioning, I don't know if I heard this or read this, that I think they think in China there are like billions and billions, or not billions, like a, at least a billion Christians in China itself, the underground church. So again, the gospel has spread through all nations. No other religion can boast such a thing as of yet. 
that may change as tide as the tide turns, as you know, and uh, you know that prophecies of end times, the world may be totally against all believers. But for now, the disciples are called to go out and share the gospel with all nations. <clears throat> so, disciples are followers of something or someone, and, and obviously we're talking about Jesus. Uh, so God, or Jesus says, go and do that. That's what the disciples are supposed to do. Secondly, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if you are a disciple, he says, once they're disciples, then you are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And baptism is basically making a public declaration of what's already happened inside your heart. Now, get, baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't mean, hey, I'm not saved unless I am baptized. No, you are saved, and then you are baptized, showing everybody what you've done. It's symbolic of you dying to your old self and rising anew. So if you are a disciple of Jesus, and this is one of the things that we talked about in our membership class, in order to be a member of our church as well, that we want you to be baptized. This is a command that Jesus gave to his disciples. And I would ask, maybe there's some out here this morning that are like, I'm a, I'm a believer, I'm a disciple, but I've never been baptized. And I would ask you, why not? It's a command of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a red-letter Bible, it's in red letters. I don't at the moment. Jesus said it. You already believe it. Now go out and be obedient and be baptized. And we're, and we're looking forward to our baptism that we're having uh, probably uh, in May if... Uh, the house is available. We have someone in our, our church that's offered their home. And so we're looking forward. It's going to be a great time. I'm looking forward to it also because my, my youngest son, uh, Jonathan, has said he wants to be baptized. So that's going to be awesome. I think, he, well, he understands it. If he doesn't, I'll just hold him down for a long time until he does. <laughs> no, it's cool. He's, he's ready. My other two have been baptized, and I got to do that. So that was, that was awesome as well. So. He's ready for it. We're going to hold him down a little bit longer and scrub off all, no, just kidding, all that sin. So that, I'm looking forward to that. But it's, Jesus says, hey, disciples are to be baptized. So it's after they're disciples, then they're baptized. What else does he say? Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So part of being a disciple is that you begin to follow the Lord's commands. You keep the Lord's commands. When he says observe, it doesn't mean you just look at them and admire them and say, oh, those are nice teachings that Jesus gave. No, you, a real believer is a doer of the word, right? So Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, all those things that you guys have learned over these past few years, and as he told them in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit's going to bring to remembrance all that I have taught to you guys. You are to share those with all nations. And if you think about it, that's exactly what we have in the rest of the New Testament from Acts to Revelation are the memoirs of the apostles and what Jesus has taught them. So they did that very well, and we have that here in our scriptures. So they are to teach these things to all people, specifically the disciples of Christ. So they, they're committed to doing this, and they're going to teach them. The disciples don't get to pick and choose what they're going to teach everybody, right? They're going to teach what Jesus had said. And I, and I think that's a lesson for us as well. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, 
You don't get to pick and choose what you're going to follow. Right? Jesus, the whole counsel of God is contained in these scriptures. And so we're going to learn how the Ten Commandments apply to that as well. Um, but hey, Jesus said to do this. We do it. We don't say, well, you know what? We don't do that anymore. I don't feel like doing that. Uh, actually, Jesus didn't say that. The Apostle Paul said that. So I don't know. That's not how we roll. We follow the whole counsel of God. That's what a disciple does. You don't look for ins and outs of your teacher and your master of trying not to do something. And so I, d- I think we need to make that clear because unfortunately there are many of those, not here obviously, but in uh, certain denominations where they, you know, they're like Thomas Jefferson. We'll just cut out this scripture. We'll cut out all the miracles of the Bible. No, we, you don't get to do that. Um, we're going to teach all that Jesus taught the disciples. And then Jesus promises them something. He gives them this big task from the mountain. He tells them, you're not alone. I'm going to be with you. Look at verse, the end of verse 20. He says, I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is going to help his disciples fulfill this command through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with them. He's going to show them who to evangelize, teach them how to evangelize, and teach them how to disciple. And the Holy Spirit is continually doing that through his church. And he have that, you have that comfort of Christ's presence with us always, again, via the Holy Spirit. We are never alone. We are never left alone. Again, you may feel, as the psalmist had, as I read earlier, we may feel alone at times, but we know we're not. Jesus says it right here. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And it's not just the 11, the 11 apostles that were there. There were other people there, too. This just doesn't hold for them. It's for all believers of all time. We have that comfort. And so, again, when you're doubting something, you're doubting God's presence. Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He may not be intervening. He may not be doing what you want at the time, but he's with you. And I pray that that will bring you comfort. So let's close with some application. Just three points of application here this morning. So for us, as a church and as individuals, as disciples of Christ, these things hold true for us. This great commission is true for us as well. Number one, we too are called to evangelize the world. We are called to make disciples of all nations. And in our own little worlds, in our homes with our children, in our workplaces, in our communities, and in the church here, we make disciples of one another. And how that plays out is going to be different. You know, doesn't mean, hey, you just go to, uh, to work one day and set up shop and start preaching the gospel. Um, you may get fired or something like that. But obviously we do that in the midst of our relationships on a day-to-day basis. You know, when opportunity presents itself, share the gospel. Make disciples. Evangelize those people in our immediate world. Maybe some in this room one day may be called to missions. And spread out to other parts of the world. I think Kauai needs missionaries. So I'm going to move to move to Kauai and do that. Just kidding. But that's what we're called to do. These, again, these aren't just for the apostles. That's, the point. that's for the entire church. The church age. And until Christ returns, we are to evangelize the world. As a matter of fact, Jesus says he's not returning until all the world has heard the gospel. So there's some part of this world or some person that has not heard the gospel yet. So we need to get out there so that Christ can come and do that. Secondly, 
we are called to edify the church, meaning we make disciples within the church. So that's the role of not only of the elders of this church, but each and every one of us. We are called to make disciples in our church, edify the church. And the first way we do that is we baptize, as I mentioned earlier. We need to baptize. Everyone who's a believer, we want you baptized. It's following Christ's commands. It's showing that you have given your life to Christ. It's a testimony to the other people in your world that you're following Christ. So that's one way that we edify the church. The other one is we instruct each other to be disciples in the church. As I mentioned earlier, we give you the whole counsel of God. We teach you things that Jesus had taught his disciples. And I like what, um, in an example of this, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, look at verse 2, 2 Timothy 2, 2, chapter 2, verse 2. Here is uh, an example of discipleship that the Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy. And you'll see there's four links in this discipleship. So he says this. I'll just read verse 1 just for the context. He says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which I have heard... Uh, excuse me, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who, we, who will be able to teach others also. So you see that you have the Apostle Paul teaching Timothy, who's going to teach other men who are going to teach other people. That's discipleship. And I believe that's what we try to do at our churches. We teach you, or you're in a Bible study and you get taught, and you in turn go and teach others so that they may teach. That's discipleship. That's how we edify our church. That's how we spread the gospel. You know, without going there in the book of Ephesians, it talks about my role as a pastor. My role is to edify the church, to build you up for the work of ministry. So I teach, and then you go out and do different uh, ministries in the world and our church. My, that's my role as a pastor, to teach the word of God so that you may go out and do the works of ministry. But don't be overwhelmed because that same truth that Jesus gave his disciples is true for us also. That God is with us even till the end of the age. Be encouraged and comforted by that promise. You know, it may seem a little scary to like, I have to go or I'm called to go and share the gospel with somebody or to teach them. Yes, that's what we're called to do. And we do it when we get opportunities, right? Maybe... And maybe sometime you may be asked to teach a Bible study or share in a Bible study. And it may seem a little frightening. But know that the Lord is with you. The Lord will give you the words to speak. As you're reading his word, he will speak through you. I always give this example just because it's just so vivid. The first time that I ever preached the gospel to a Bible study. Again, you may have heard this if you've been here for a while you have. Uh, to a convalescent home. A bunch of little... Uh, a little ladies and men who were wheeled into the to the room. It's just so vivid to me because I was like, this is scary. You know, they just stared at me. And some of them were fighting in the audience with each other. But I was scared out of my mind. I remember first telling the guy, I, don't, I, I can't do that. And he's like, well, just pray about it. And then two weeks later, I said, okay, I'll do it. And then that was my first uh, sermon I ever gave. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how it went, but I just did it. The point of that was that God will be with you. And I believe the Lord is with me. He gave me scripture and I shared it. And who knows what he did with that? I don't know. 
but we, I have that promise that he's with me even to the end of the age. And that, again, that promise is true for each and every one of you who are disciples of his. So in closing, again, we're called to evangelize the world. We're called to edify the church and be encouraged that Jesus is going to help us every day to accomplish this great commission. Let's pray. Lord God, we once again just celebrate your resurrection and all that it means. As we've seen this morning, your resurrection has given you all authority. You have defeated death. And you now have a name that is above all names. You are Lord of heaven and earth and those under the earth, as Scripture says. And Lord God, I pray that you would help each and every one of us this morning to proclaim that truth in our world until the day that you return home and take us, or return and take us home. I pray, Lord, first this morning that if there's anybody in this room who is not yet your disciple, who has not given their lives to you, I pray that they would do that this morning. Lord, I pray that they would realize that, hey, I, I just come to church and that's it. That they have not fallen down as the disciples did on the, mount, on the mountain in Galilee and worshipped you. I pray that they would do that today. There may be some in this room this morning, Lord God, who worship you, but are in a place right now where they're doubting. They're doubting your plan for their life. They're doubting something in your word. Or they may be even struggling with their own faith and doubting that they are even saved. I pray, Lord God, that in their hearts that you would confirm the truths of your word for whatever situation they find themselves in. I pray that they would run to you, Lord, when they doubt. That they would express their doubt to you. And like the psalmist, they would eventually see who you are and what you do and that your word is true. And for the rest of us, Lord God, again, I pray that you would give us the boldness and strength to share your word with this world, to share your word with our brothers and sisters in this church, that we might edify the church. And Lord, I pray also for our baptism coming up in the future, that it would be a, just a, a great time of celebration where we would see many, women, men, many men and women and children being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.